All right, Justin, sing me a song that a movie taught you about something else. Uh, <laughs> a song that a movie taught me about something else. Um, wow, I should have something for this. There are so many like life lesson songs, and none of them are coming to mind. Nothing's popping out. And that's a loss. No. Yep. Too Can late. it be unhelpful advice? Like a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. The medicine go down. The medicine go down. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. I remember that because I just think that's BS. Does that count? Yeah, as long as they don't use it for insulin. Yes. But I guess I'll give it to you. Heather, what about you? What's a song? About that. Alexander Hamilton. My name is oh, Alexander fuck Hamilton. You. <laughs> Why? Because I won? Yeah, I'll give that one Winner. to you too. She won. That's it, man. I know I got a winning record now. No, you don't. Irk. Man, I can't I can't believe you pulled out Hamilton. Ugh. That's, that's <laughs> it's also been in my head all week, so that's kind of why. Man. This is my week project, man. Next week, that's my project. I'm going to count these. I'm going to count my victories. And the scorecard is going to astound you, Sterling. You wait. No, it won't. You're losing. (laughs) All right. I mean, there's just no way around it, Justin. And if you're not losing, fuck it. I'll rig the game to make sure you lose everyone from now on. Oh, man. It's on record now that it's rigged. So <laughs> I've never denied like that. Cares. You, you, this is true. <laughs> I've said multiple dealing. times it's rigged. <laughs> this is true. But now you can't go back and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I of course you wouldn't cause because you stand by it. <laughs> it's it is rigged. It's 100 percent rigged. That's why when you do have victories, you should feel like that's substantial because you're winning at a rigged game. But it's also why you will right. always have a losing record. Mm. Good to know how it works. The house always wins. I mean, Justin, there was an episode where I rules. said, Justin, sing any song you want. And you failed. <laughs> I mean, how can you honestly think you have a winning record after losing that one? <laughs> Which episode was that? I remember that. It was, I don't know, like three or, I don't, it might've been like six or seven episodes ago. It wasn't too terribly long ago, but yes. Yeah. I remember that. And you still lost it, Justin. I just remember I also lost because I sang Cotton Eye Joe. So yes. don't feel too bad. Yeah. And he got so mad by that. He was like, why did you sing that? I remember he was really upset about that. It took some of the sting off me. So I do appreciate you for that. But yeah, I guess we still <laughs> both lost though. As you should. I think technically Justin ended up losing three times in that episode. Because he defended me. Online. Yes. And yeah, I gave, right. I I gave you like one win and like one loss, Heather. But Justin mm-hmm. got multiple losses for that episode. Mm. Not as confident about my record now, but. You shouldn't be Justin. <laughs> Let's put it this way. If this was wrestling, you'd be like the anti-Goldberg. Oh. <laughs> Just a straight jobber, just coming out. You would be Gilbert. Yep, Gilbert. <laughs> oh, you read my mind. What was it? Wasn't there that one wrestler that like lost like a hundred and something matches in a row or two hundred matches in a row? And then whenever he broke the streak, 
he broke it like winning the tag team championships. Yes. Not Zack Ryder, but his tag team partner. Oh my gosh. Kurt Hawkins. Kurt Hawkins. Yeah. Yeah. That was him. That was uh his thing. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Justin. You're him. So on that note, let's play the music. Hey, Cinefans, and welcome back to another episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. I'm Sterling, and as always, I'm joined by Heather and Justin. And we are doing a kind of different take on an episode today. We are going to be kind of talking about, like, we've each prepared, like, little mini reports uh, based on essentially things that we've more or less learned from movies or that existed from movies. Uh, Justin's is a little bit different than ours, so just kind of, you know, strap in and get ready for that. Um, but yeah, we're kind of just going to jump into this and I've already forgotten the order in which we decided on earlier. And I think it was Justin. So I'm just going to say that. So Justin, go ahead and kind of read your little mini report going into something more or less learned from cinema. All right. And you are correct. I was the, uh, starter that was chosen for this. And, um, and yeah, I'm going to veer off a little bit from my colleagues this time. Nothing like as far as a historical person or a historical event just jumped out at me or inspired me for this project. So I started to just kind of look deeper at movies and ask myself, okay, what would be something kind of interesting to study or to educate people on or something like that. And for me, especially somebody who is um, practicing writing, I've actually written some screenplays and stuff like that. I've always been fascinated with movie structure and how a, 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 a film story is put together. And I thought that it would just kind of be fun because one of my favorite books for learning how to screenwrite, uh, is David Trottier's screenwriter's Bible. And it's just a really just in-depth directional book on how to formulate and write a screenplay and everything like that. Now, I'm not going to do a report on the whole book or anything like that, but there was a portion of his book that I thought would be really cool and very useful for this since we're always talking about movies. So uh David in this book breaks down basically six major events that happen in every single movie. And I promise you with, with, with these six concepts that he broke down, they do happen in every movie. So what I thought would be fun was just to kind of go over the concepts really quick, the, the six parts of a film, and then kind of just use some films as some examples and then just kind of show how this fits in. And I also think that uh, a lot of whether or not you like 
or dislike a film actually does fall within these six parts. If you break every movie down like this, you can probably pinpoint exactly when you fell in or out of love with that film or why it did or did not work for you. So I think this is fascinating stuff. So that's what I decided to do my report on. So let's just jump right in. So the six parts of a film. So the first part of the film that David highlights is what he calls a catalyst. So a catalyst is something that basically upsets the cart. It starts the story. It's those initial things that happen in a film that really just gets the story moving. So whether we're watching something like the Lion King and it's an, and it's the opening ceremony, you know, with the big circle of life and all the animals bowing down to Simba as he gets lifted up in the air on Pride Rock. Some, you know, sometimes it's something like that. Um, Maybe it's in maybe it's an event in Spider-Man Homecoming. Maybe it's the beginning of that when we see Vulture getting um, uh, basically um, told to th- that him and his workers are going to have to go home and there's no more work for them and that they're going to lose their jobs because now um the the government and shield is investigating what happened with this alien invasion and he's realizing that he's not going to have any work he's not going to feed his family you know we see these events all the time in a movie and they're just those initial events that really establish characters and get the story moving in a forward direction so that's your catalyst then in every movie according to David you have to have the second concept which is the big event and the big event is something that changes your main character so it's a big change that happens towards the beginning of the movie that that sends your your main your main character your central character on a journey so that's what we're talking about here uh obviously going back to the lion king mufasa's death would be considered a big event so that's what we mean something that happens in narratively in the story that kind of sends this character a certain direction and of course we know that when um simba's father mufasa died he went into exile he fled from Pride Rock and then it started this whole kind of story of him coming back to redemption so that's what a big event is well after you have your big event and your character is your main character their life has changed something has happened to them you have to have what David calls a pinch in the story and this is a plot twist or something that happens halfway through the story that kind of really puts that character um, it kind of directionally heads that character downward because he's coming towards a very low point in his or her story. So that's what a pinch would be. So if you think back to the, I'll just keep referencing Lion King since that's what I started with. But if you think about the Lion King, what would the pinch be in the story? We know that the big event was Mufasa's death. Well, remember while he's there chilling with Pumbaa and Timon, who visits him? He finds not 
Impala, right? And then they have this conversation about what happens to a prod rock and it leads to Simba having to make this decision. So that would be the pinch in the Lion King story. Something that kind of triggers us to get to the next concept that David is talking about, which is the crisis. Now, the crisis is the lowest point for our hero or heroine or whoever this story is focused on. So this is that point in the story where it forces a central decision to be made. And and it doesn't have to be the lowest point. It doesn't have to be a character on the brink of death, but it is a but it does have to be a character on the brink of making a big decision. And what are they going to do? Are they going to decide to try to redeem themselves? Are they going to decide to, I don't know, help out the, the, the poor man that asked them for help? Is the teacher going to decide? What is the teacher going to do about her students? You know, whatever the, plight is for this main character, this is the point in the story, this crisis point, this is the point in the story where they have to make a decision. Going back to the Lion King, what was the big decision that Simba had to make? Do I want to go back and defend Pride Rock and be the king that I'm supposed to be or do I not? And remember, he had that crisis moment. And I'm talking about more of the animated one here because, uh, yeah, we already know about that. Uh live action computer animated one. So we're not referencing that. We're talking animated. So what happened in that? Uh, Nala came to him in, t- in the pinch. Nala came to him and visited him and told him everything that was happening with Pride Rock. Then he was at a crisis point. And what happened? He saw his father in the clouds. He had Rafigi there helping him and talking about, yes, the past hurts, but you can overcome that. You can learn from it. And it was all these lessons that led to what decision? He decides to return to pride rock and that decision leads to what date to to the next concept in david's um six parts which is the showdown there has to be a showdown of some point of some with some sort of stakes for this character yeah that's a better better way to say it a showdown with some sort of stakes now in the lion king of course it's simba facing off with scar right but in Spider-Man Homecoming is Spider-Man finally facing off with the Vulture. And, and, and there are always, and there are so many examples of this. And like I said, it's not always a hero versus a villain scenario. Sometimes it is a character coming face to face with uh, something philosophical. Maybe it's their morality or maybe it's their inability to um, find an answer in something or coming face to face with the truth. Whatever that is for that character, there's always got to be a confrontation. And then finally, at the end of your movie, you have what David calls the realization, which shows the growth of this hero or heroine, right? They are supposed to have come to a point to where this story comes full circle and they have either learned something from this or they have stepped into the role that they need to step in or sometimes it ends with the hero or heroine dying but maybe some bigger thing or some larger thing is accomplished because of this journey that this hero or heroine went on and of course if you're thinking about the Lion King Simba defeats Scar and he finally steps into that 
role of king. And so at the end of the film, we see that we see the circle of life repeating. And now um, his son is put up there as the person who's going to be the next king. So all is right with that world. And, you know, Simba has assumed the role that he was running from or was confused about and All these events happened, but he finally got back to what he was destined to do. That story is complete. And so that is essentially the five, the, the six parts of a film. Sorry. The catalyst, the big event, the pinch, the crisis, the showdown and the realization. And the cool thing about these parts also is kind of what I was saying um, at the beginning when I started is that sometimes these concepts, these parts make or break a film, you know, and, and sometimes your like or dislike for a film is directly related to how effective these six parts were done. And sometimes you can pinpoint it right to a T. Like for instance, I'm not high on the movie Rise of Skywalker, um, the, the, the latest Star Wars film. And one reason why I'm not as high on it is because I thought that the realization, which is the sixth concept in this, I thought that the realization at the end was kind of weak. I, I thought that the character journey for Ray, who was our main character, I thought that that could have been a little better. I didn't really see the struggle with the dark side. I didn't really see the struggle with the Palpatine part of her it always you always just kind of felt like ray was good and i didn't feel that there was a complete journey there so when we get to the end and this decision this she's at this crisis point and this big decision has to be made you already kind of know what that decision is going to be and there wasn't a showcase of any real struggle to get to that decision by that point so for me that would be an example of a realization for me that I don't think it quite worked. And even though the confrontation or the showdown uh, in this case was pretty solid, like, you know, the showdown with Palpatine was pretty intriguing. I didn't think that the realization in that film was very effective. But then when you look at something like, and this is the last thing I'll say on it, when you look at something like, Let's just say Black Panther, for instance. That's an example where you have kind of a reverse. The showdown wasn't the greatest showdown. You know, the CGI was kind of shoddy. It was kind of that, you know, there was some stereotypes in there with kind of these two superheroes and villains that are like each other, fighting each other. So it did have some problems in the showdown. But the realization at the end of the film was great. You know, it was the the hero T'Challa actually learning from that villain experience from Killmonger and actually changing the the way that he operated. He opened up his borders to other countries. He tried to help people in America because of the influence that Killmonger made on him with that showdown. So to me, that as the that was the opposite effect of these two concepts. I liked that better because I felt that the real realization in that film 
was stronger. And so this is just something that I like to challenge people to think about. Think about your favorite movies and think about what the big event is. Think about where the pinch occurs. Think about what the realization is for the character and what the showdown was. And you might be surprised what it reveals to you about your favorite movies and why you like them. Oh, the good old screen actors by or the screenwriters Bible. Yes. Yes. Yeah, no, that's cool, though, because it's yeah, I mean, because it's it's cool to hear those specific examples and stuff, too, because then you can go back through pretty much any movie you've seen, you know, especially the ones that you really like. And it's probably the big yeah, the big reason why you like those movies is because of those specific things that they're putting in there and how they're approaching them in the film. So, um, no, that's really cool. That's an interesting thing. I've never actually read that before. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And it's even fun. Like if I wanted, I could probably quiz you guys and say, okay, think about the movie, you know, the best, you know, think about the, your favorite movie. And I bet if I ask you what the big event is, what was the event at the beginning of the movie that really changed the course of that character of those characters? I bet you could tell me, you know, I bet you could tell me what the crisis point was for your characters in that movie. And I bet you could tell me what the realization was now that you understand the parts, you know? So it's just fun to do with all kinds of movies. Yeah, and it it really doesn't surprise me though, Heather, that you haven't like read that or anything before, because most of the time, the only people that do read that are uh, people that want to write screenplays. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, so it's not like it's you know why would a movie goer pick up you know it, it's very uh, it's not something that unless you're probably looking for that subject matter or trying to write film or anything that you would be interested in initially, but knowing it, now you could kind of look out for it. And really all all it is really also something that David kind of iterated is that every movie has a three act structure. And you kind of know, and everybody kind of knows about that. And that's why I thought this would be fun to do, because historically, that's always been a thing, right? You know uh, that that every movie kind of has an act one, act two, act three. And even on this podcast, we'll talk about a movie and we'll say, oh, yeah, and the third act was good or the third act was trash. And that's why this movie loses points. And I wonder how many listeners know what that actually is or what we're actually talking about. So this to me helps you better understand three act structure also because your first act is the catalyst leading to the big event that's normally at the end of the first act and then the second act is your pinch that's that plot twist I talked about and that's leading to the crisis point for your character at the end of the second act and then the third act is the final two concepts of the six that's your showdown where your character comes face to face with whatever the problem is and then the realization which is at the end of the third act so it's also a great way to kind of understand the three act structure of a movie as well so what whether you're writing it or not, now you know what you're looking at. And sometimes when you know what you're looking at, you can formulate a better opinion about it or you can better understand what what you think is wrong with it because you know the parts, right? So 
I find it very, very helpful. Yeah, that's cool. All right, Heather, now it's your turn. Tell us your report. Yeah, so this one was, it took me a minute to decide specifically what I wanted to to do mine on because I can think of several instances when a movie has kind of either enlightened me on a certain topic or event and I wasn't aware of it as much, you know, um, or just something that I didn't even know about at all. But most of the movies I thought of initially were just like, you know, um, like, for example, oh, Titanic or whatever. It's like, okay, I know what that was and what went down, but, you know, getting more detail from the movie, like things like that, where I had a lot of those where I knew a little bit, but watching the movie kind of helped me know a little bit more about it, Um, you know, granted to a cinematic perspective. So probably some of it dramatized or played out differently because it's a movie. Um, also, Pearl Harbor was one that I thought about. But um, what it came down to is I decided to go with a movie that I saw that I had no clue anything about um, this topic specifically before. And the movie I'm talking about is it's called Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, which is about the the person who created Wonder Woman. And for me, because I'm not so much into the comic world and don't know much about it or didn't before the whole story was brand new to me. And so it was really interesting when I watched the movie and it was definitely just something that I pretty much learned everything about the creator of wonder woman from that movie. So that is what I went with. And um, that is the bad thing about following Jason though is like, <laughs> You did a good job in your presentation. I'm straight up doing mine book report style where I'm reading something that I wrote. (laughs) So that is what mine is going to be about. Okay, brace yourselves, everyone. (laughs) Long before female superheroes were widely received and way before powerful women were more highly revered, there was a very important comic character that not only stirred up a great controversy for her symbolism, but would also become one of the most iconic characters and representations of feminism to date. This character, who has had many changes over the years, but is still just as relevant now, is none other than Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman, also known by her civilian name, Diana Prince, made her first appearance in 1941 during the middle of World War II. And while her origin story in the comics relates to a lot to Greek mythology, what I find truly fascinating is her true origin story of how she was created. Wonder Woman was created by American psychologist William Moulton Marston, who most people may know as one of the inventors of the polygraph. Through the inspiration of his wife, Elizabeth, as well as their life partner, Olivia Byrne, Marston created a new kind of superhero who fought battles with love instead of fists or weapons. This superhero wasn't penned as a woman until the wife suggested this, um, that this idealistic leader of love be female. Marston, being a feminist himself and a huge believer in the superiority of women, created Wonder Woman to reflect the type of women he believed should run the world. He wanted her qualities to be that of strength and attraction, yet would often depict her as being bound or chained, and even made it a point that her weakness was having her bracelets of submission chained together by a man. The symbolism of the submission and bondage brought a great deal of backlash and confusion for the readers of Wonder Woman's story, 
However, Marston was very outspoken about his feelings on bondage, stating that the only hope for peace is to teach people who are full of pep and unbound force to enjoy being bound. Only when the control of self by others is more pleasant than the unbound assertion of self in human relationships can we hope for a stable, peaceful human society. While many people throughout the run of Wonder Woman uh, found the messages... Uh, found the messages of her character confusing, Marston considered her the ultimate good and even more a hero because of the bondage she as a character had to overcome. Whatever your feelings are on his preferences, it's obvious that this character would likely not be quite the hero she is today without those personal touches he added. He was truly a curious mind of progressive thinking that has impacted the world forever. He received a posthumous honoree from DC Comics for his work and contribution, and to this day, Marston's creation is considered one of the most influential feministic characters, which still influences young girls. He died of cancer in 1947, and his wife and partner continued to live together until both of their deaths. Needless to say, this unusual love story will forever play a part in history. The end. So yeah, I just found that very fascinating because I didn't know anything about that. And I know, especially for that time period, being just outspoken as a feminist in general is, it was just kind of rare. And also just the, the idea of, you know, an open marriage or open relationships in general was very uncommon as well and very taboo. So, um, but to just say that that was, sort of a huge part of how he even created this iconic character. It was just very fascinating and interesting to hear about. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was just definitely something that I completely learned a whole new thing that I didn't know at all. That was cool. That was very interesting. And I didn't know that the, that the creator, I didn't know that that was the occupation of the creator. I didn't know that. And I didn't know that they were a feminist and everything like that. And then the original concept of Wonder Woman, it, it's crazy to hear that story. And then to think about the evolution that the character has made over time. And right. man, that's a very unique and interesting beginning for that character. So yeah, that was very interesting. Yeah. Um, and definitely the stuff too about like, I just know a huge thing was, you know, she was always being bound and she always had to rescue herself from being bound by something. And, and that was just like a huge part of what he put into a lot of the storylines. And people were like, oh, it's because he has this fascination with, you know, women in bondage or whatever. But um, just hearing the, you know, the side of like, why is that such an important piece of what he did at the beginning with those comics? Um, yeah, it was just kind of an interesting, uh, just to hear both sides of that, you know? Yeah. And, and I've I'd always kind of heard that, I guess, negative aspect of it, like, oh, yeah, that's what it was about. It was about bondage. And, you know, he kind of was doing that because of this kind of fetish he had and stuff. And I've heard that story before. So here in this aspect of it, it does make a lot of sense. And, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that because it does clarify that for me a little bit because you hear about that other story more. And now it's nice to hear this side of it as well. So. Right. Yeah. And it's it's just like, yeah, the it's just funny because I guess like especially when the comics were first coming out and that was a, a more prominent part of it, people were thinking it's because, oh, he's like, you know, uh 
a chauvinist and he's he's just somebody that thinks that women should be submissive to men and things like that and so that's what i found interesting is he's like no it's actually the complete opposite and like his whole reason for that was just completely not what came across and that's why it struggled for a little bit you know so um so yeah i don't know it was just kind of a a cool unique story to hear i guess i mean i've known that story for a while but I do think it's a combination of both what Justin said and what, and what you said, Heather, because it's all in the wording of it all. And I think that if that really was his case of, of why he did that and all this other stuff, I think the wording of it all is what messes it up because it's not that like her weakness was just being bound. The direct wording of the weakness when it first showed up was that if she lit a man bind her, she would become powerless while bound. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's where it's still even retroactively, even after hearing what he said and stuff like that still comes across as what Jasmine was saying was like chauvinist and all this other stuff for his proclivity towards BDSM and all this other stuff. And it's because that is what it's worded as in the comics is that if she lit a man bind her, she would then be powerless. So it's not that it's just like about the bondage and stuff like that. It's the whole idea that she has to even be submissive to begin with for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I, and you know, and all this other stuff. And I, and I do think it's funny too, because a lot of the stuff you were saying about, you know, like with feminism and all this other stuff, it's because when it was either the JLA or the JSA, whichever one was the original one back then, I don't remember. They're all fucking acronyms of something. It's just as something of America, whether it's the society or league. When she was a part of that, after her creation, she was their secretary. Like, she was yeah. not a member of the team per se. She was, but she wasn't actually considered a hero and, like, wasn't really a part of the team. She was the team mm-hmm. secretary of it all. And I understand that, especially back then, once a, uh, a creator created something in that, you know, for a company, they no longer had really the rights to it all. So while he might have made Wonder Woman to be something of a feminist icon and all this other stuff, there is the aspect of it that DC themselves then went and took that and went, well, nope, she's a secretary. That's still yeah, all she let's is. Change it. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Good point. Really good point. Yeah. So I think that that's where you still get muddled with some of that stuff is that, well, that might've been his intention, DC completely fucking gaslit that by just having her be, you know, an atypical woman in everyday society to them. Hmm. Yeah. And then you think about like the progression of that character too over the years into now and like just how different the, the idea of that character and the, the traits of that character come across, you know, it's very, it's very different now because you think about, um, you know, even up to, like the new the the Wonder Woman movie that came out a few years ago and just how it just it seems very different than that concept now. And I think that also has to do with how how much more progressive, you know, feminism and the, the concepts of these things are a lot more um, accepted now. And it's all about empowering women and seeing that side of a superhero. That's a woman that's totally empowered and yeah, so I just feel like, yeah, it, it does get muddled, especially because of the time of when she was first created. And I mean, honestly, I'm shocked that they allowed that her to be 
considered in the comics, honestly, at some points, because, you know, just that that time, it was just not a common thing. And um, yeah, so it's just seeing how that character has progressed along with just the progression of how the world is now. It's 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 cool to see, though, because it's just like you hear about a woman superhero now and you're just like, oh, awesome. There's another one. That's cool. You know, but just thinking about the struggle that it probably was to get that first comic of of Wonder Woman off the ground (laughs) and how that it had to have just been so much struggle and fighting to even get that going. And now it's like, no, let's do more. That's cool. You know? Well, yeah, especially in D.C., because like in D.C., they had a uh, they had a series running for a long time. I don't know if they still do, but it's called it was called Trinity. And that was Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, you know? That was like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's their trinity. That's their top tier. That's, you know, the three most important heroes to DC right. Comics now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, it's also one of those weird things, too, where like comic books for a long time have been weirdly progressive and regressive simultaneously. I mean, you look at some mm. of the things like the X-Men. X-Men were an allegory for civil rights at the time and stuff like that. And then now have become more of an, an, an allegory uh, when it comes to like civil rights of like uh, the LBGTQ community and stuff. And then you have like something like Captain America and the Falcon and the Falcon being Captain America at one point, And you have all these things, but then you also have, you know, examples of like Fu Manchu, which was a terrible Asian stereotype or Fing Fang Foom or like all mm. these villains and or like just these characters in general. They're just rife with stereotypes. So like, it's been this weird thing of, you know, you'll have Marvel with Luke Cage and the Black Panther and all this other stuff, but then you'll also have terrible racial stereotypes left and right for a very long time. And so it's been kind of weird how it's been like this weird, you know, they were progressive in some ways and completely regressive in others. I mean, with Iron Fist, you know, this white man goes to Asia and then becomes essentially (laughs) a white savior now. You know, because, (laughs) you know, when you have the ancient one, especially in the comics and stuff like that, who for a long time was just kind of that weird stereotype of that wise old Asian character that, you know, knew all the secrets in martial arts and shit, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, which was a big issue with the new Iron Fist series, because the new Iron Fist series kind of played into that. Or uh, you would have it was a Doctor Strange where that's where the actual ancient one is. And, you know, now you have that same type of character, but now you've got Tilda Swinton, Tilda Swinton playing uh, the ancient one. And then it kind of became a weird whitewashing of the character instead of actually just giving a fleshed out character. So I think a lot of the stuff, especially when it comes to comics, I know I'm going way far off from Wonder Woman. And I just kind of brought her up or tied this into that because Fu Manchu, was it Fu Manchu? I believe so was a villain of wonder woman's a lot. Mm -hmm. So, which was a gigantic egg with a Fu Manchu mustache that was yellow and terrible. Um, but, uh, you know, you've got this, uh, Shang Chi movie coming out for Marvel. And I think kind of a lot of whether or not Marvel's going to take their commitment to diversity and all this stuff serious is going to be on, it's going to kind of hinge on how well they do Shang-Chi, you know, because that's one area where they've been really failing. Uh, a lot of people was that, but yeah, I just, I do think it's crazy that yes, like you were saying, like 
she was meant to be a feminist icon, but then she was a secretary in other DC books. But now she really is like, it's very much a big part of our cultural zeitgeist now is wonder woman being a feminist icon, you know? Yeah, for sure. All right. Are we ready for the last one? Ready? Yes. Which this one's going to be kind of super serial and slightly depressing. And I'm sorry about that. Um, and also with this, I do want to preface, we will have our sources listed in a Google doc on this. I meant to say that earlier and then I totally forgot to say it. So we will have our sources listed in a Google doc um, that you guys can look at. If you want to, you know, just see some of that and explore some of this other stuff. But mine is going to be uh, based on uh, the story that Tulsa, uh, or I'm doing a report on the Tulsa race massacre of 1921, which has been a big, big story kind of in the news lately with the whole Juneteenth uh, Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma mm-hmm. and the insensitivity, insensitivity of all that and stuff. And, you know, so mine's going to be uh, based on um, that because I thought it was crazy, which this is, a, you know, a fairly big moment in our, you know, history as a country. And I never learned about it or heard of it or anything until the TV show, the watchman. And that's one of the things me and Justin talked about on our episode for the watchman is like how crazy that that story has just been kind of swept under the rug for so long and mm-hmm. that it officially was not a part of Oklahoma curriculum until 2020. That's when it became an official part of uh, Oklahoma history that they had to teach. It would get taught sometimes, but it wasn't until 2020 when the legislature dictated that it had to be a part of it. But kind of just like a little brief history about this. Mine's going to be a little bit kind of like Heather's, you know, more report style with this. So the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921 is considered one of the most severe incidences, incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. It, it occurred in Tulsa, Oklahoma, starting on May 31st, 1921, and it lasted two days. And for it being a massacre and stuff like that, and because of the time period and the kind of story that led to all of it, the official death count is kind of all over the place, which like, I think officially for a long time, the death count was only, they only said 30 people, but then when they Oklahoma uh, started a commission to investigate it and all this other stuff, they found like a mass grave of people and stuff like that. So the death total is wildly huge and considered to be anywhere between 30 and 300 people. And that's just crazy that it's 270 people different. Yeah. You know, overall. Uh, And with the death total, they don't have it really differentiating between white and black people, but it is considered that most of the people that died during this were black people because of the nature of everything that happened. So in this destroyed, what was a very prosperous black neighborhood uh, outside, just right outside of Tulsa, uh, with the, of the name of Greenwood, which at the time was known as Black Wall Street. So overall, during the massacre, over fourteen hundred homes and businesses were burned, and nearly ten thousand people were left uh, homeless after that. Uh, and so, uh, in in another thing, I found out while looking this up is that the Tulsa race massacre wasn't even really mentioned 
It was not required and was not was barely mentioned in uh, history textbooks in Oklahoma. Uh, the first real major appearance of it, like actually having some substance to it, was in the late 1990s. So 70 plus years after it happened. And that was around the same time when a state commission was formed to actually historically document what happened with it. So a very brief summary of what happened on it was on May 30th, 1921, a man, uh, a young African-American named Dick Rowland, who was a shoe shiner, was accused of assaulting a, a white elevator operator named Sarah Page in a downtown building in Tulsa. The next day, the Tulsa Tribune printed a story saying that Rowland had tried to rape Page with an accompanying editorial stating that a lynching was planned for that night. So this was the newspaper of Tulsa calling for a lynching of this man. Mm -hmm. And that evening, mobs of both African-Americans and whites descended on the courthouse where Roland was being held. And a confrontation between an armed African-American man there to protect Roland from said mob, lynch mob, and a white protester, uh, they ended up getting in a fight and a gun went off and uh, the, the white man died. And so then, uh, or the white man in that confrontation died. And from that point on, essentially, was two days of white people from Tulsa just attacking this neighborhood. So um, essentially just a huge mob then descended upon them, just lighting fire and looting and killing every black person that they could find in the city. That, and that included men, women, and children. It wasn't even something of, it was just men or something like that. Because there, and, 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 and the people of Greenwood did also defend themselves too. It was like a literal mini battle, like a war battle, you know? Because a lot of people in Tulsa who were a part of the mob on both sides were all veterans of World War I, you know? So these were people that were trained in fighting and stuff like that. And uh, so with all this, there was even uh, accounts from some survivors and everything like that, that uh, like planes were flying overhead, dropping bombs on the city, like incendiary bombs, like homemade, like Molotov cocktails and things like that. Now there is some more evidence to some of that stuff that I will talk about later, but um, so with this, it was just more or less a slaughter where they went and destroyed this neighborhood, which uh, I, I, I did see a figure, which it was like, it was some hundreds of thousand dollars worth of damage to this neighborhood, which in nowadays dollars, I think they said would equivocate to like 300 and something million dollars worth of property damage alone in nowadays dollars. And so like with this, and that's what, was kind of one of the big things about this is the reason why this place was called Black Wall Street is this was an incredibly thriving community. Like a lot of people in this neighborhood were very well off. Uh, there were a, a majority of this neighborhood themselves and the businesses in this neighborhood were doing better off than a lot of the poor white people in Tulsa. So that that's also one of the things that is kind of attributed to why they were so eager to then go and destroy this neighborhood is because if you look at it, especially with this being 1921 and all this other stuff, the, you know, this wasn't 
this was before a lot of the Jim Crow stuff had really started really kind of taking form in the South, uh, you know. And so with this, they more or less just looked upon this as, you know, like, why are these black people doing better than I am? I'm white. And, you know, sociological speaking, that's a very common thing that happens to lend itself towards racism and stuff like that. And so with this whole thing, like they just destroyed and leveled this neighborhood. And so, like I said, and it was over two days. And so the official death total, when it was all said and done, according to the government of Oklahoma, was that 10 white people and 26 African-Americans died. That was the official death total when it was done. Uh, Though a lot of historians now and things like that, based on, you know, actual evidence and actually looking into it and actually caring into all this stuff, uh, equivocated to roughly 300, over 300 people died in this, uh, in this incident. And so right after the incident originally happened, there was an inquiry that looked into it. Um, but it was more or less, it lasted a very short amount of time. And the, essentially the official finding of the inquiry and everything like that was more or less that, Oh, the black people started it. So everything that happened was their fault. So while there has been like recommendations for, uh, reparations and stuff like that to have, ha- uh, to happen because of what happened in this uh, incident, nothing has ever actually happened. The most I've ever seen is a private church in Oklahoma, in Tulsa, was able to get around $30,000 and they from, of, from private donations and were able to distribute that to the descendants of the survivors of this incident and stuff like that. And so roughly the payments were to $200 a person uh, in this incident, which the official commission that was informed, uh, formed to uh, look into this and to uh, suggest things and things like that uh, suggested around $33 million should have been uh, would have been a good amount for reparations. And it's one of those weird things. It's like, how do you fall on a good amount or whatever? But that's what they suggested. But the Oklahoma legislature didn't care and didn't actually do anything with it. Um, And like I said, this was about 20 years ago when they were actually looking into all this stuff and it took them 20 years to go, okay, this has to be taught in Oklahoma schools not just in the textbooks. It actually has to be taught now. Um, so with this, it's one of those crazy situations. And it's one of those things that were, I was like, I was really kind of gung ho about writing a report on this. And I was like, there's just so much fucking information to actually like go into. So I'm going to list one of my sources, which is a book. And I highly suggest people just go read that book. Um, or just, you know, there's actually been a few documentaries and stuff like that made about this. And I'll list some of those too, even though I didn't necessarily source them for this. Uh, that people should just go look into and read or watch um, if you actually are interested in the actual history of what happened. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about is that a lot of survivors said that there were bombs that were dropped on the town, incendiary bombs and things like that. And a lot of historians looking back at like photographs and things like that that were taken and actually dispute that that actually happened, that aspect of it happening just solely based on the type of damage that they were seeing from the buildings. Uh, you know, there was no evidence of actual explosions or anything like that. Yes, there was tons of fire damage and things like that, but there was no evidence of building actually being exploded with the type of debris that you would see and stuff like that from it. So there is some uh, muddiness when it comes to some of that stuff. And for a long time, some of that stuff was considered fact from people and stuff like that. 
but like I said, like people whose job it was to investigate this and people and historians that took it upon themselves to actually investigate this scenario and stuff like that. They just don't necessarily agree with that count that bombs were dropped because of that. Now it is not disputed that planes were there and there is evidence and stuff like that of people firing rifles and uh, like machine gun type of weaponry that you could put on a plane and stuff like that. Cause you know, this was a different time, but uh, they were firing rounds down at people from these planes. Cause like a lot of these planes were like, like little biplanes for like uh, crop dusting and stuff like that. And there was evidence that that was used. And there was evidence that these planes were also being used to kind of like do reconnaissance to where like, they could see people where they were running and stuff like that. And so there was evidence that they would drop things from the planes to kind of signal that that's where people were so that the people on the ground could then go attack those buildings. So, you know, and it's one of those things also it's when you're in a situation where all hell has broken loose, like where it is just, absolute pandemonium for two days of just being attacked by numerous people. You know, you're seeing shit get dropped from the fucking, you know, from planes and you're seeing buildings on fire and you're hearing gunshots and you're hearing all this shit. It is perfect, perfectly reasonable to think that bombs were falling. You know, especially if you've never actually been around a bomb, you just kind of know essentially what they do, but never actually been around one being dropped it's insanely reasonable to understand where maybe that idea came from, you know? And also it's like I said, it was just an absolute massacre. It is, it is called a massacre for a reason. And it was just one of those things that one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up and all this stuff is because I was completely flabbergasted that I'm hearing about it from a fucking TV show on HBO. And it's not even like one of those like critically acclaimed documentary series that HBO does. No, no, no. This was the Watchmen. And so even after they introduced the concept in the Watchmen, which if anybody knows anything about the Watchmen comics, they kind of play loose and fast with history. And and that's because the whole idea of the Watchmen is that it's an alternate version of America where, you know, Nixon was on his third presidential term and was never impeached and never resigned. Robert Redford had become president and, you know, and, and stuff like that. So like this, what, like they, they do an alternate take on history. So originally, or, and that Vietnam, we won the Vietnam war and Vietnam was the 51st state of, of the United States. Like that's an idea from the watchmen. And so like when this first started, I thought it was one of those things. Like this was an alternate take of history that they were going to add to it and all this other stuff. It's like, and then you find out it's real and you're just like, holy fuck. And then you go look into it and you read it and you listen and you watch things and you're like, holy fuck. It really is real. Like it really is insanity that like, that was the first time I'd heard about it was that, and it's such a monumental thing. And it's such a big thing that it's just kind of, it's just blows my mind that that's where I first learned that something like this actually happened in our history and it's just been more or less completely ignored. Yeah. It's um, really sad that this isn't something 
that really is just a basic part of our American history. And it's just such a it's such an important story, especially for black people, because um because they were on the verge of being self-sufficient. It's just one of those moments in history where you can't help but think what could be if that was allowed to take to just run its course and completely come to fruition and black wealth was able to accumulate and be attained and things like that, just like white wealth has been able to do in this country. So it's just one of those things, man. And, um, and it's something that people, uh, a lot of, uh, black history historians and people like that talk about often how just that there was a moment there where maybe be black people would have been able to progress beyond where they were and then it was just stopped and that's just one of those just really catastrophic events that really just puts into perspective how bad racism was and just coming from the 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 perspective of someone who is black that is why it, it always just angers me a little bit when somebody downplays or acts like um, or, or downplays what racism is in this country or how catastrophic it was for African Americans in this country and how and, and how those trends and things the, 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 there are residual things that we're still feeling now because of events like the Tulsa massacre so anytime you hear someone go well, well yeah yeah racism that stuff was bad and what happened was bad but you know it, it's it just upsets you every time because people just have no idea the the how catastrophic things like that really were when you put it all together with slavery, with the whole civil rights movement and Jim Crow and all these things that have kind of defined what the African-American path has been in this country. And then something like the this Tulsa massacre and then the fact that it's moved out of history. So you've got white people on the other side of that. You've got a lot of white people growing up that don't know this story that don't know about it. They don't know these things. So all these opportunities to have these cautionary tales about racism and the effects of it and things like that, things that would really help change the racial divide in this country. And they're nowhere to be found when it comes to our historical curriculum. So it really is sad and it's uh and it's problematic for both sides of this thing yeah that's i mean and i'm i'm kind of in your boat sterling where i had not heard of this before either and like it's crazy and shocking that you know it was people tried to just omit this from like history so that people didn't know it was a thing like that is insane and sad you know i mean even if you want to ignore the death total and you still look at it though as what what i say 10,000 people lost everything they had yeah yeah everything and just even on that level it's incredibly horrifying because like if 
if you had something and you had a house and you had a business and you had all this and you had like a savings account and you had money and all this other stuff. And then one day you just, within two days, you lose everything. And then you are more or less told to figure it out yourself. You're not going to get any help. You're not going to get any assistance. You're not getting anything Mm -hmm. back. Figure it out yourself and get yourself back up on your feet. Who would actually be able to do that? You know, especially when it's like, Oh, you have like a degree in something or all this other stuff. Cause most, most people back then didn't and stuff like that. I'm just saying. So even if you were now somebody that had like a degree in something and then you have to take into account that like hiring practices and things like that, especially in the 1920s, like it's like, Oh, well your degree doesn't count anymore either. Like you don't really have mm-hmm. anything to put forward to then go get a job to then set yourself back up. Like everything is stripped away from you. And then on top of that, you probably then also lost a family member or a friend or something in that event also. And then you're just told to figure it out yourself. And while the rest of the country ignores that it even happened to you. Yeah. And it's also just, it's such a form, like a rare, well, maybe not rare, but a crazy form of like mental abuse almost too. Like it would just be like, People coming forward talking about how they're victims of like assault or something and just being like, okay, cool. Um, we, we don't want to have anything to do with this and we don't even want to acknowledge it. So figure it out yourself. Like it's kind of the same concept and that's like a form of like mental torture almost. That is insane. Well, to take it one step further, Heather, it's, it's like that same scenario, but then they also blame the victim too. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, on top of all that, they were like, and regardless of anything, we are officially saying it was your fault anyway, even though you're yeah. a child that had nothing to do with anything. This is your fault. Right. You deserve to be homeless. Yeah. yeah, And that's so crazy. That's insane. You know, cause on top of that, like the support structure they would have possibly had, like if this had happened to maybe just one house, like say a mob got together and went and destroyed this one house in this, especially in that neighborhood, in that community, they very well could have banded together to help that person back on their feet help them rebuild their house, give them somewhere to stay, give them food, give them a job, all this other stuff. No, they, they took the entire support structure of this community also away from them. So like whatever like possibility they had to get themselves back on their feet was also stripped away too, you know? Yeah, that's crazy. And it kind of just goes back to something that you and me have discussed with a lot of people on your personal Facebook, Justin. When it comes to some of these historical points and stuff like that, when they talk about erasing history, when yeah. <laughs> they they don't even really address what that means because they're talking about erasing history when it comes to, say, the Civil War and the Confederate States and all this other stuff. A, they're not even really realizing that the version of history that they learned in high school, that most Americans learned in high school and that's not even going in on racial lines. The, what most children have learned about our U.S. history, especially the U.S. history of essentially 1900 and on, or what well, that was being taught from 1900 and on, about American history in general, is an incredibly sanitized and whitewashed version of history. And... So like whenever it talks about the founding fathers and stuff like that and how great they were and all this other stuff, like, and like I said, on the Hamilton podcast, they don't talk about the fact that we're not even getting into like some of the real terrible things that people did, but George Washington sending his generals away so he could fuck their wives. 
We don't even talk about that. And I, I mean, I kind of get that. You're, I'm not surprised that they don't teach you about, you know, the first president of our country would intentionally go send people possibly to their death so he could fuck their wives. I kind of get that. But I'm just saying, like, in general, you know, and, and a, a lot of the reason for that is because they wanted to, to glorify certain people in certain aspects of our history to further the message and the agenda that they wanted. Like, regardless of however you look at anything, when it comes to the Civil War and the reasons why it was fought and all this other stuff, the, the, the line high schools across America have been teaching, and I'm not even talking about just in the South, because there's a lot of weird things when it comes to the educational system and how textbooks are printed that's incredibly fucked up for a lot of things. Essentially, one state's uh, board of education decides essentially what the entire country is taught because most of the textbooks are printed there. So I won't even get into what state that is. It's Texas. But. Yep. It's, yep. Good old Texas. And it's the same curriculum that leads Texas. Or last I knew had the 49th best uh, educational system in this country. Read into that what you will. But <laughs> the history of our country and especially like the Confederacy and stuff like that, that the Civil War is not fought because of slavery is fought because of states' rights and taxation and all this other stuff. And it, to me, that's always been the weird thing about that argument. The Civil War was about states' rights. It's an incomplete sentence, and I won't go terribly far into it. But the other half of that sentence is, it was the states' rights to own slaves. That's what it was. That was the, that's the full sentence. But they stop halfway through. And that was the number one reason. And anybody that wants to debate that, look at what Jefferson Davis and the vice president of the Confederacy, I don't remember that guy's name, but he's got a very like uh, important speech called the keynote speech or the keystone speech. Go read that, where these people have said, historically, the South was created so that white people would have their or the Confederate states were created so that the white people would have their rightful place above black people. And, you know, that's a very nice way of saying it. I very much sanitize that myself because I'm not comfortable saying some of the words they said. So with that, like that, they've even said the people that said it, essentially the George Washington of the Confederacy even said that. And somehow it's a debatable issue. The reason why it's a debatable issue is because in the 1950s and 60s, as a part of a lot of the stuff, and it was kind of spearheaded by these, a group of people, um, a, a couple of different groups. A lot of it was KKK based. Take that, take from that what you will, of kind of sanitizing the Confederacy and teaching that to children. It was a big movement from Southern Democrats, who later became the Dixiecrats, who later became another political party, which I won't go into that. We're trying to keep this not political. But Either way, like, that's the history of it all, like, in a, in a very real big nutshell. And so, like, th- that's one of the reasons why something like this story about the Tulsa massacre isn't taught is because it's something that actually happened that goes against the narrative of what certain groups of people wanted our country to be. Kind of goes into, like, the sanitized version of the Trail of Tears, you know, that we learned in high school. I learned that the Trail of Tears was just a nice relocation of Native Americans 
two different places in this country, which everybody should know is bullshit just based on the name of the event, the Trail of Tears. They weren't crying because they were happy they were getting moved to better places. Right. Like the name itself betrays the message that they were taught or that we were taught, but that's what we were taught, you know, and that it was just kind of no big deal. I mean, like if I'm remembering correctly, it was like a paragraph and a half about the trail of tears is like we spent, we spent maybe 15 minutes on the trail of tears, like my entire school career. And that's because it goes against the narrative that they wanted to teach. Yeah. Same here, man. Yeah. And man, you're so right about that. And it's things like that. Like I understand why a lot of people think that Confederate statues and Confederate monuments and things like that have to do with heritage and history and aren't racially biased. I 100% understand why people feel that way. The problem is, is at this point in time, and I've said this to somebody on Facebook, so if you've already read this, you're going to hear it again from my silky smooth tones, that at this point in time, all these people that believe that are at a fork in the road. Because the actual information about these statues, why they're there, about these people that they represent, and what the people that want to argue and say that's not the Confederate flag, that's like the Virginia battle flag. Okay, whatever. Let's accept that too. There's a reason why all those things exist and are prominent in in society all over. I'm not even going to just say in the South because I live in Illinois. They're prevalent as fuck here. You go outside of Chicagoland, you're going to start seeing a lot of Confederate flags. You're going to see a, a lot of stuff like that. And which is funny because what is, what is Illinois known as? The land of Lincoln. So the land of the people, you know, or the land of the man that fucking fought the Confederacy. We got a ton of Confederate flags here, you know, and people that believe the South will rise again and shit like that. I'm like, you're not in the fucking South. Get over it. Anyway, neither here nor there. But. I understand your reasoning why you think that. And so all the information about this stuff is actually out there. And I'm not even talking about going to Wikipedia or this or that. I'm talking about going, go to a website like the Smithsonian. Go to some of the websites about like that are from Civil War museums. And they will actually teach you the actual history of this. And I'm not saying go to like any of these like Sources that are like liberal. I don't care about any of that. Go to these places whose sole mission is to keep historical records and to be a museum and to teach history, whatever it is. Go to those places and their websites and stuff like that. You will find articles and you will find stories and you will find actual historical documentation of this stuff. And go and look at that and learn the actual truth behind all this. Because I know what you were taught in high school. I was taught the same thing. I know what family members of you taught you growing up. I know the stories that you heard your entire life. I heard those exact same things. But the actual history is out there. And at this point, it is now up to you and, and, and yourself to actually go out and learn this history. And to actually seek it out. Because our history classes and our educational system across this country has failed us in a lot of regards when it comes to that. So it's like up to you to find that. And that's kind of one of my reasons for wanting to do this episode is because 
I heard something I'd never learned in history and wanted to learn more about it. And I learned about it from a fucking TV show. And it wasn't even a historical TV show. It wasn't like I was watching the fucking history channel and learned this shit. I learned it on HBO in a fictional TV series. Like I said, not even an HBO documentary, a fucking fictional TV series based on a comic book. That's the first time I heard of this. And it's my mom. How did you know to look it up as if it was a real thing? I honestly don't remember. I is either maybe a conversation with Justin or seeing something on Facebook. Just some somebody somewhere pointed out that it actually happened. And I was like, wait, what? No, no, we would have heard about this somewhere. Even if it was just like, you know, in history where they were like, yeah, there was a big race riot in Oklahoma. Yeah. And now on to 1922. We, I, th- I figured we would have at least learned that. And so I just, I remember somewhere somebody mentioning or saying something or alluding to the fact that it actually happened and me being like skeptical. Cause I'm like, no, I would have heard something. And then just, you know, typing in, you know, you know, race war or, you know, race, mm-hmm. right. Just something. I typed something Tulsa, Oklahoma into Google and then all this shit popped up and I was like, <gasps> what? Yeah. And just started looking into it. And like I said, I gave a very succinct, small, very quick summary of it. And, and like I said, because that was part of like what I wanted to do with this is just to kind of show that where movies and TV shows and things like that can sometimes transcend what we have and what we've been taught and all this other stuff. Because I know a lot of times, like I railed on like a lot of based on true stories and traced based on true events because they do take so many liberties with stuff. And I have issues with that. But it's also, what are you willing to do because of that? Like, what are you willing to learn yourself? You know, I would, I watched something on HBO, found out something actually happened and then looked into my, looked into it myself. And I I just kind of feel like that's something that's lost, especially in a time like this with a lot of the debates and everything that's being questioned all over this country over a various uh, amount of issues and topics and all this other stuff. I think it's more or less shows that that's something that we don't do as a society. We don't hear the truth or we don't hear something that goes against what we've been taught and look into it and just to see what is what to actually learn the history of something, you know? And I mean, for all I know, you might hear what I'm saying right now and you might go look into the history and go, nah, fuck it. I don't believe it. You know what? If that's the case, uh, you do you boo. I can't, I can't do anything further than that. It's just, I think that that kind of message, though, in general, just needs to be something that happens, that we do need to learn more of what uh, of what our actually history is. And, you know, even if it is something like a movie inspiring you to go learn more about it, I think anything that inspires anybody to learn something other than what they're taught in school, I think is great. So I think that that's one of the reasons why at least me specifically wanted to do something like this in this, in this type of uh, scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good job guys. That was that both of you guys that I really enjoyed both of those. That was, this was good. I enjoyed this. Well, and, and, and with something like with yours, Justin, it's just in general, like of just how movies are structured in general, you know what I mean? Like, I think that that is also something important, especially in something like this, where we do talk about movies and TV shows and stuff like that where 
a lot of people don't think of narrative structure and and just being able to see and identify some of those things i think kind of just helps with the idea of movie watching and just seeing what other people or like why writers write that way and stuff like that and it also kind of helps you see where kind of bad writers and bad directors exist yeah when you start seeing that oh this director keeps failing in the third act m night Shyamalan, um mm. and stuff like that or just in yeah. general where like a lot of criticisms of early dc films and well i think all dc films because I, I i think up until birds of prey they all all kind of suffer from the lackluster and like just incredibly similar and uninspiring third act all of them have suffered from that up until birds of prey so and you can look at that and kind of say yeah and that's where you can look at like your showdown you know your showdown and your realization and you can really pinpoint it and say okay what's wrong with the showdown here what happened in the showdown of wonder woman how does it compare to what happened in the showdown of batman v superman what happened in the showdown and you can look at those individually and i bet anything you can find some patterns or the realizations you can look at the realizations and go well and maybe you will find that there really aren't any. And then it would explain. Then you would understand. Oh, that's why I don't like this shit. You know, <laughs> like it, it really it really does help to know those parts. Then you can just understand. It's like a mechanic with a car. Right. Or anything like that. Right. When you understand the parts, you can better determine what is wrong with with said thing in question it it typically works that way with anything when you know when you understand the parts you can probably detect the problem better than somebody else somebody else might go well i can't put my finger on it right like i i don't know why i don't like this movie but i know i don't like it i can't put my finger on it it seems like everything is there but i just but i i just didn't find this effective i just wasn't feeling this movie i just don't like this movie but a person who understands those parts can probably tell you why you didn't like it you know i i do want to disagree with you on something justin because you were talking about watching the dc movie individual third acts and the ending with the showdowns and uh revelations and stuff like that uh i don't think you have to watch them all individually because i think if you see one uh you kind of seen them all You've kind of seen them all. Yep. And that's they're all the exact same. Valid. You yeah. just copy and paste yeah. characters and that's it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> but they're all the same. They all look the same. They all sound the same. They all play out the same way. They all have the same aesthetic when it comes to everything. I mean, for the longest time, DC couldn't end a movie if there wasn't fire and smoke and people fighting a vaguely colored, like grayish villain. That was the ending of so many of their movies. And they somehow still did it when they did Aquaman. They somehow still had fire and smoke and the shit was underwater. What the fuck, DC? Man. <laughs> oh. And people wonder why I love Birds of Prey so much. And I was like the first one that it wasn't a vaguely just gray villain fighting with fire with the main antagonist. I mean, and they still even kind of did it because they had the boardwalk be foggy. <laughs> So it was still kind of close to that. That was like as far as they could get away. They were like, okay, it might not be smoke and fire, but we're still going to make it visually ambiguous by putting fog into it. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's kind of true. But at least that movie, the real at least there was a realization for Harley Quinn, you know, which is why I could understand your argument for why that third act is 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 stronger. Uh, it, it even yeah, even though the confrontation or the showdown had some of those things in there. Overall, you did feel there was a realization for that character. That character looked like she seemed like she traveled and there was an arc and she got to the end of that arc and you understood where that character was. And sometimes that is not so clear. Well, really, oftentimes it's not so clear in those movies. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'll say this, at least most of the showdown had color. Because most yeah. of the final showdown did take place in inside uh, that fun house. You know, it was just the very end of it where they got visually ambiguous with it again, which I'll take that over most of their shit. Yeah. True. Any final thoughts, guys? Nope. It was all very informative. I am good. And on that note, guys, thank you for listening to this episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. Uh, check us out on Facebook at cinema underscore slayers. Check us out on wait. No, I say I completely fucked all this up. Let's tr- start this again. Check us out on the internet at www.cinemaslayers.com. Check us out on Facebook at cinema slayers podcast. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at cinema underscore slayers. You would think I'd have all that down by this fucking point. This is what episode one Oh two. I think overall we've done over 140 episodes and I still fail on that. Sometimes Jeez, get it together. Sterling. Anyway, uh, we do have a lot of fun stuff coming your way with some of the stuff. I do know we're going to post a winning tattoo idea at some point when we remember to actually do that. We are going to post a thing for you guys to send us like your list of movies, like the 20 movies to be like an essentials list for you. And I understand 20 movies sounds like a lot, but if you actually watch a lot of movies, you realize 20 movies is insanely difficult because my list ended up being 60 something movies and I had to narrow it down to 20. So yeah, that sucked, but yes, because we want a fan version of that too. So we're going to take, you know, movies off what you guys say, especially movies that are mentioned multiple times and stuff like that. And we will put them uh, into a list of of fan movies. And so we are going to do the thing where we watch one of those movies of whether or not it's on mine or Justin or Heather's or the Cine fan list and do an episode on that. So Uh, The only thing I kind of ask is with that, if you are going to put movies we have already done episodes on, um, maybe just put an alternative to them. Yeah, I don't care if you list them and just say, hey, these would have been on this list um, because we don't want to kind of do the same episode we've already done. So with all that, remember, guys, according to Justin, Moon Knight is a Best Picture winner. I have no song at all <laughs> that has to do with history <laughs> or a report. So this is all you get is me rambling. Typical Justin, you just lost again. Ugh. I mean, you admitted it, though. You admitted you lost again. <laughs>